Hey, this is Eric Oldman. You're listening to The Rockin' Chicago Show. In each episode, I connect with musicians, artists, and industry people who are involved with Chicago's underground and independent music scene. The show is really a conversation about our creative processes, our hopes, our dreams, and experiences recovering as we all navigate through the challenges brought on by the pandemic and moving forward to a new day where we can create and perform music in and around our fair city. Our guest for this episode is Alexi Front, the founder of the Scorched Tundra Heavy Music Festival, which takes place annually here in Chicago and also in Gothenburg, Sweden, has been going on since about 2011. Alexi has a long history in the music industry, most notably founding the independent label Pivotal Recordings in 2004. The label has a specialty in sharing and syndication of a variety of death metal music from Sweden. Alexi is also a fellow podcaster and produces the Heavy Hops podcast, a weekly interview format which focuses on the innovators, the creators, and the insiders in the music and beverage industry related to heavy music and beer. So, um, Alexi, you're the first person I've had on that actually is a fellow podcaster. Oh, cool. So this is why it's also kind of a treat because you're thinking in the same kind of points that I am of like um, just kind of the the meta processing of, okay, how are we going to organize the show? What do we want to talk about? But those those parts of the stuff are are kind of ingrained in in what you do as well. Um, I guess we could kind of start off with that. so how did you, what was the hook that got you interested in doing podcasting? Yeah, podcasting is something I wish was around when I was doing college radio in okay. 2006. Okay. So I have a little bit of a history in music journalism. So going back to being like a forum troll in middle school okay. and in college, okay. um, not college, in high school too, I uh, found a bunch of people uh, on a new metal uh, forum and... <laughs> We found that uh, we had a lot in common, and we sort of started this uh, zine called Pivotal Rage. Okay. This was, like, pretty early um, in that, uh, like, 2002 time when there weren't, like, a ton of zines. Right. And this was all remote, so we were using, like, uh, FTPs to share files, right. and yep. it, was a, it was quite a time to be... Uh, right to be doing that, you know, if we had the resources we have now, it would be something else. But that was the beginning of sort of music journalism was wanting to get music for free, wanting to be able to go (laughs) to shows for free, wanting to be able to have conversations with musicians that we had met online. And so that was sort of the the beginning impulse was really through writing, through doing reviews, interviews, live photography, all of it. I I really touched all all of those sorts of um, categories of music journalism. And so I really was interested in radio and I tried radio in college, but my sort of vision of what that was and what the FCC had in mind for public broadcasting different. were very different things. Yep. There wasn't a lot of podcasting happening at that time. I think there was some like internet radio, yeah. but it wasn't really what it is today because their broadband wasn't widespread at that point. Right. So, uh, And I had also kind of, by that point, began to express my interest in music in different ways that were non-journalistic. So that was having a record label by that time, managing bands. You went wide with all of your interests with that then. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. I tended to cast like a pretty broad net and I sort of went with whatever energy I was getting back. And so that explains a lot of why 
I began to travel quite a bit around the world. And okay. why I found Sweden was not just because there was a ton of music emanating from Gothenburg that I found very interesting, but there was also a pull coming from there too. And that was from the bands that I had been exposed to through the uh, time doing music journalism. And at the same time, you know, seeing unsigned talent and wanting to do something with it. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, so you actually were, were in Sweden, you were living there for a bit then. I wouldn't say I was living, I was spending a lot lot of time, a lot of time. Yeah. I, you know, from a, from a young age, uh, I traveled quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I was fortunate to, uh, come from, from a family that had the means to travel and that valued, experiencing other cultures and understanding people from other places as uh, a sort of important humanistic experience. And so I tried to continue that through, uh, through college and by having music be that sort of avenue that I use to uh, experience travel. And later I was able to find other things like beer to be, uh, to accompany me in those journeys. I think that, uh, things ended up landing in, uh, in Scandinavia. Cool. So there's a lot of resonance with kind of that culturally. Um, and then just that, that scene out of Gothenburg at that time too, was pretty much, it was lit. It so, was, wasn't it? Yeah, like, I, right. I, I really think that it was, I think like 2000 was when I first saw, uh, this band called In Flames. Yep, yep. They were touring with, uh, with Slayer and Soulfly and they played the, the Riv and that was the first time I saw uh, sort of like melodic death metal from yeah. uh, from Gothenburg. That was the that's their signature. Yep. Yeah. Right. And, and um, you know, after that, and you know, many subsequent uh, trips to Metal Haven to hmm. leave, you know, much lighter in the wallet uh, with yep. At the Gates records and yep. all kinds of uh, fun stuff from uh, from Stockholm as well. I think yep. it it sort of uh, sparked, and you know, also while being rooted in Chicago music was like a really fun way to sort of, uh, experience other cultures and to see how this like sort of style of heavy music Mm -hmm. is always just sort of interpreted and then reinterpreted and how that changes and, you know, what sorts of different cultural lenses do these different societies, um, you know, impose on a a genre like heavy metal that really sort of started as like a universalistic type of music. And then uh, over time, you know, I think as most other art forms sorts of changes, depending depending on who's looking at it. Yeah, there are different, you know, even thinking about in flames with getting more uh, pop oriented later on down the road. Um, it's approaching now where it's um you know there there are, there are um in with metal there's so many subgenres um that that get into that mainstream flow of things where it's really kind of exploded you know it's it's um but I think there's the nice thing about that is there's still the dichotomy of the stuff that's really underground um so you can have it both ways with that you know that sort of big umbrella genre of kind of the the more extreme uh, forms of rock metal and all that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was actually uh, through the lens of melodic death metal yeah. that we signed our first band okay. on our record label. Okay. Was we had like this sort of unsigned section in our zine, 
like it was something called ubiquitous, like band you need to know section every month when we did like an upload. So you have a little spotlight. Yeah, right. a little spotlight for something unsigned. And there was some like really awesome stuff that we got because you know we were very well read as a zine at that time. I think we were getting 30,000 unique views a month, which was like, I mean, I think that still would be considered like a pretty decent statistic. And so a lot of people were sending us stuff from all over the world. Right. And because, you know, we really sort of, I wouldn't say favored the music from Gothenburg and what was kind of hot at that time. Right. Um, other bands from that region caught, uh, you know, caught wind of that and yeah. started sending us stuff. And so it was really uh, bands coming from that ilk of metal mm -hmm. that we gravitated towards and ended up kind of signing as early bets in the uh, in that endeavor. So with uh, the label, um, how did I just I'm just curious because, I mean, you have, you know, the sort of the journalistic side of things, which um, in some ways you could, you know, that's kind of like a, an end to end solution for a music scene. You're, you're the PR sort of journalistic and then you're actually helping out. How, how did you deal with distribution of the music? I mean, and just out of curiosity of like managing that from a just on a practical level. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely an element of winging it. Yeah. Uh, but winging it, but also, like, having a ton of that, like, unbridled confidence that you have as right. a late teen and early 20-year-old. Like, I'm right. going to take on the world. I'm going to do this. Right. I'm going to prove people wrong. Like, yeah. you, you... Yeah, like you need that a uh, little bit of like ignorance to be able to do something that when you Try look it. back on it now, you're like, wow. why the fuck would you do all that <laughs> stuff at once? So I, yeah. I think that it, that was like sort of the, the some of that like back intuition. But we uh, when we were when we were like when we signed a band, take like our first band, uh, Sonic Syndicate, for example, we signed a deal to where we found distribution partners in all the key European markets. Okay. Um, we, you know, knew a lot of labels because we were doing PR, right. uh, more or less as journalists on one end. So it's basically just kind of putting yourself uh, at a different point of the, the chain. supply chain. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Right. So we really sort of thought that we had a pretty strong expertise in what labels were doing and what they weren't doing. And we decided to start a company that was looking at things a little bit differently than like the bigger label, bigger independent labels were. And um, sort of setting a, a bucket underneath all the bigger buckets and catching the rim that come that misses those buckets. Right. And so that was really where our first two signings came from was things that we thought were just criminally good that li bigger labels weren't getting. And they ended up being really, really uh, successful. Sonic Syndicate for their second album signed to Nuclear Blast. Okay. They were considered a priority band, did three albums, gold albums. That was really uh, an important uh, fiscal driver for the for the record label. And then the second signing was a band called Blinded Colony, who were from Karlsham, the other side of Sweden. Their singer is a guy named Shellback, who writes mm -hmm. music for Britney Spears mm -hmm. and does the Max Martin circuit. Very uh, And so, you know, that second album also did very well, uh, you know, just being released at the peak point of compact disc sales and for us right. to be on the forefront of digital distribution to... Um, you know, those were very important things. But, you know, we relied on our instincts as as journalists and as having that type of understanding of the industry to then look for the right partners in all of the markets. Okay. And it, it wasn't necessarily the same 
partners in every market for each release too. We really wanted to treat the artists in a manner that demonstrated that we understood what they were trying to accomplish and that we were going to help them get there. You know, we weren't the the most well-endowed company necessarily, but we wanted to at least show them some respect and say, hey, we're willing to work with different partners, okay. uh, whether it's on the PR side or whether it's with distri- maybe not distribution, but certainly with like PR and other sort of uh, components of an album release to accommodate what they want to do and also create something that's going to be successful and build a long-term partnership. Okay, cool. And um, lots of emails. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was just thinking about that time frame too, because that's really before social media really took off as well. And I remember, um, you know, I, I kind of came up a bit earlier than that in kind of early to mid 90s. And that's when the zine culture really blew up. And that was that was really the way to uh, like learn about underground music, and also to, to exactly where you went, being able to see stuff from overseas. Um, I, a friend of mine who I was jamming with in high school, he went on to form the band Avernus, uh, the doom metal band. And I remember when he got his first uh, tapes done, and like just kind of hanging out with him at his house, and I was helping him get the mailers together and all that, and he was like showing me all these different zines for extreme metal at the time, and. Um, and just how, um, it wasn't a huge scene in the sense of like it is now with, there's just millions of blogs out there, millions. I mean, there was like, you know, probably a good dozen or two different zines that were doing all this kind of stuff. Um, but it was so vital, you know, and then like hearing about all these bigger bands that kind of came out of all that, that was, that was really the culture that kind of set all that stuff up, you know? So, um, that, that's just a fantastic experience to have and hearing about your side of it is you're, you're at the other end of that kind of as somebody who's kind of helped brokering some of this talent in. Yeah. I I mean like there for us, we didn't really view doing like a physical zine as something like it's something that in a way was like, uh, a media tycoon aspiration. Right. Um, but you know, we saw like sort of those overhead costs of like, Uh, of printing and then distribution as like uh, as a little bit crippling for us uh, being as small. And so with also my partners being located in like Florida and Maryland, I mean, we all met on a forum. So the coordination was all digital. And so it made sense for the syndication to sort of match the uh, match sort of the methods that we were using to to communicate. And that kind of was the precursor for really the online uh, world of journalism really before it kind of blossomed in that so that that's great mm-hmm. it was a it was a there was a lot of proliferation and there was yeah. a lot of like really cool stuff happening there was a lot of like very poor journalism too right. but that's always the case anyways right. you're gonna get a, a wide range of people doing this for very different reasons as well right? mm-hmm. yeah. but, but it was a fun time yeah. when there were only a dozen or so zines uh, online, and right, right. they all did different things. There was a level of uh, of cooperation, I remember, and you know, you had an opportunity to be a tastemaker at this point. I think yeah. it's very hard for uh, for an online publication now to be yeah. a, a tastemaker just because of the amount of competition. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Same with podcasts, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a way way different game because it, it, it is it's so saturated. And I, I see a lot of people 
getting into podcasting or coming back to our initial thread, which is, that was a cool journey to kind of go on with that. Um, you know, they, they kind of look at podcasting as another sort of self-promotion of their personal brand. Um, and I think some people, if they're smart about it. They do it right. That's great. Um, but then sometimes it just kind of seems like it falls short of what, what they say they're doing. And it's just really more spam, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it depends on what your brand is, right? Exactly. And you can right. use it as an opportunity to be self-promoting, but then that's like a pretty narrow journey you're taking people yeah, on. Right, right. But you can also use it as an opportunity to uh, to learn and to explore, right. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's um, kind of goes into my next question now. So beer and metal. Mm-hmm. That's heavy. That's your podcast, Heavy Hops. Yeah, I, I think I would sort of characterize it the, the way that I describe it to a lot of people is that it's an interview format with innovators, creators, and insiders from the music and beverage industry with a little bit of a focus on heavy music, generally speaking, and beer, generally speaking, but not exclusive to those things. I think, um, yeah, I, I think that there, there are things that I have a lot of experience with and I feel like I can hold my ground in a conversation with. But I, I really enjoy the sort of openness. I mean, the name Heavy Hops is supposed to be a little ironic. It's a little like Scorched Tundra. It's supposed to be tongue-in-cheek and it's supposed to really like not mean anything. Rolls um, off the tongue, though. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and it's supposed to really allow me the flexibility to be open in the concept. I think like both of those names really uh, allow you to uh, interpret all four of those words in a very open manner right, if right. you want to. Whereas, um, you know, there are podcasts that are very specific in the name and yep. that creates a, a very, <laughs> I mean, but uh, I think you, you, you do choose like uh, a wide variety of guests and what yep. you've probably found is that there's, there's more there than you may have right. thought at first, right? Exactly. And so that's, I think that's exactly it. Yeah. From the start, uh, I really wanted it to be open because I wanted to keep it interesting for myself. Right. And um, in you know the name Scorch Tundra too. Not only was it a kick in the nuts to all the European festival names that are horrible and generic. But it was also meant to be this thing where someone reads it and they're like, what the fuck does that mean? Right. And I kind of want that yeah. to be the case because 10, you know, I'm now organizing the 12th edition. That'll be this uh, or, you know, uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, September of 2022. Right. You know, I want to be able to interpret that now as I am and to, you know, think back to what I was doing then. Yeah. It the, the meaning can kind of change over time. And For that's. Sure where I started it with. And I think that for how I like to do things, it's, it's important to be open uh, in that way. We're going to take a little bit of a break and segue into some music. I asked Alexi to pick a couple of bands to play during tonight's episode. And uh first band on uh, is Huntsman. This is off of their uh, last release Mandala affair. Name of the track is clearing the sand.
talking about scorched tundra yeah so the the festival itself uh its origins are in two uh, back go back to 2011 in yeah. gothenburg it was really sort of a showcase mm. for bands that i had been working with over the years in gothenburg and i wanted to put the event on at like a time of year where there wasn't anything right. happening right, right and so that time of year was between christmas and new year's when everyone was off Everyone had holiday money, and People they wanted want to get to fucked up yeah. and listen to heavy music. Yeah. So that was the origin, the the genesis point of, of that. And over time, I began to incorporate bands from Denmark. I began to incorporate just sort of relationships that I'd picked up over time. So that included bring Bong Ripper over in 2014, okay. Pelican over in 2015, and then in 2016, that's when the relationship with the empty bottle sort of uh, okay. crystallized. And at that time, I'd been uh, working at a uh, sort of brewery and bar in Chicago called Local Option. Mm -hmm. And we were pretty f early in recognizing the heavy metal and beer overlap. It was an important part of all of us as people and yeah. in it became a strong part of the identity of the place too. And so we uh, partnered up with the Empty Bottle for a number of pop-up ticket events for shows that we thought were awesome. Mm -hmm. We wanted to support this, uh, this venue and also give the people that were coming to our place one, an opportunity to like buy and hold a physical ticket to a show that may be sold out or that, we thought was awesome just as sort of like, uh, I guess you could call it like an evangelization thing, you know, okay. really to get people stoked about the things that we were and to uh, support a local venue. I met uh, uh, during those, I met a number of people who are still in the organization. Um, but one person in particular, uh, Mike Gable, who was the promotions manager at the time, um, you know, he and I uh, built a, a, a pretty strong friendship. And when he took over the talent buying position in 2016, 
one of the first things he uh, he mentioned was, have you thought about doing Scorch Tundra in Chicago? Because I had not done it at that point. Okay. And I hadn't really thought about doing it. But when he uh, when he mentioned it, you know, that was on the back of bringing Pelican over and right. uh, me having a little more sort of confidence in what mm-hmm. I was doing in Chicago. Because for a long time, I was caught between worlds of doing yeah. things in Gothenburg, right. doing things in Chicago. It was it's like a dual reality. It right? was really yeah. weird to think about doing something in Chicago, even though it was the place that I grew up in and the place that I lived in and I professionally worked in. So I said, fuck it. Why not? Like, let's do it around Labor Day. And so, you know, we were fortunate the first year, had some great bookings. My Lord was the headliner. Uh, one day, Bong Ripper was the headliner. Another night, we sold out both shows in advance. It was an incredible experience and just sort of took off from there. So that was the sort of beginning with the with the empty bottle and you know over the years we expanded the festival into like a three-day thing we've done a two-day thing um and then in 2019 i began to do co-promoted shows as well using that name as your kind of production company exactly yeah Yeah. so it was a little bit like scorch tundra the festival endorses or wants you implores you to check out church of misery at the empty bottle or to check out gay creeper and exhumed at the empty bottle or see mono lord you know like things that um, we or that I thought were very important and that I thought were important to be at the empty bottle. So I, I've been very fortunate to have the type of, re- of trusting relationship with the, uh, with the empty bottle with uh, Mike and uh, Brent and also now with Molly, who's the talent buyer to okay. where we have a great working relationship. We understand each other and uh, you know, it, it's a, uh, it's not something every promoter has with a venue. Right. And so I feel, uh, I feel very fortunate and I value that relationship quite a bit. Yeah, no, that, that's excellent. Um, just kind of curious from um, kind of your, your process of putting the festival together. Um, like, you know, do you do a sort of a, an all call for any bands that are interested in submitting or do you, are you very careful with your curation I don't know how, what you, who you select for the There's a, a pretty high level of intention that goes into who is asked to perform. There's a high level right. of intention of what happens if this artist isn't available. There's A, contingency plan, B, contingency right. plan. So, I mean, there's probably, I'm, you know, I'm in the middle of kind of booking next year's event right now. And, you know, the short list that I had was about, 30 or so bands, you know, to fill 10 spots because it's a three-day event next year. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, a pretty uh, deep amount, I'd say, of people that I'm asking or thinking about asking, depending on, right. um, you know, and going for the headliners first, seeing who's available, who's right. interested. Um, it's almost like a brackets game, but you have to kind of keep going and falling in to get the, the different series of if this, then that, or this, who this person and that. So, and I understand the, the depth of work that it takes to kind of put that on as well. So hats off to you. For yeah. That. Uh, an- another analogy that I like for this quite a bit. So my wife and I moved to uh, Avondale mm-hmm. in uh, August of last year. Sure. And one of the things that we sort of enjoyed the most about that process, like there's anything to enjoy about moving, was the selection of putting, housing. Right. Yes, that was, but also we have quite a bit of art. And so the fun thing that we had was 
looking at all of the art and choosing where it goes into the apartment. I mean, actually, the first choice was what colors are we going to paint the wall? Right. And then where do things go? Right. What kinds of relationships did okay. these paintings or, you know, whatever they were, uh, paintings, posters, photos, what kinds of relationships did all of those things have in our last place? Right. And what kinds of relationships are they going to have in this new place? That's deep. That's cool. And yeah. so, like, imagining, the, like, personifying or sort of, like, uh, bringing to life, uh, you know, bands or these pieces of art uh, are very much like the same thing to me. And so they can mean very, very different things depending right. on context, right? The yeah. context, exactly. Yeah. So the, the, the space, is, uh, sorry, I'm stuttering here. But the, uh, so the idea of like the space and uh, whatever the art presented, they have to work well together. It's not necessarily, hey, I have this painting. It needs to go up on this wall because I said so or I have emotional attachment to it. And it, you're really taking it to a level of what works for our space visually. Um, and I guess kind of coming back to now yeah, getting the analogy of in the same context of booking bands for your festival. That's, that's really, really deep. I like that. It's, yeah. it, it's important when you're putting on an event to, and I implore anyone that does events to yeah. uh, attempt to think about things uh, in this way or to try the hat on a little bit Yeah, is to show a lot of respect to the talent that you're booking and to the people that are going to buy tickets. Right. And, do a number on thinking about your pool of bands, who's going to work with who, when. It, it, uh, it all matters quite a bit in the calculus of things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, different bands may work together on different days depending on what's happening the next day. Right. Uh, there's so many variables Touring, to think about. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, sure. I, 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 you know... One, you know, when you look at like European festivals, for example, where mm. there's a circuit of like 30 bands that are playing every single festival. Right. It's those like festivals are all different, not just because of the geography, but because of when, who is playing where. Right. And that can work on a small level, too. Take a minute to talk about like our local heavy scene. Um, you did curate a really wonderful guest list. Thank you for doing that. And that'll be featured along with this episode at rockinchicago.org. Um, I personally think that our heavy scene, especially in the last 10 years, has really blossomed again. Like we're in a good generation of bands, bands who are informed by some of the, the things that you're talking about with Sweden. Um, kind of hearing that kind of come out now just as a, a generational influence. But there's also just been kind of a, a breath of things kind of coming in. For a long time, Chicago was very much a, a classic hard rock town. Um, and then it became sort of the parlance of for the groove metal in like the 90s. But now we, we have a lot of the, the subgenres kind of coming in and these artists who are coming up who are starting to kind of like be driven by that. And I, to me personally, I love the diversity. Like I, I like hearing even just with metal, just different kinds of metal. I like hearing black metal. I like hearing tech death or, um, you know, there's a lot of cross pollination now from what I'm hearing with shoegaze elements and sort of ambience with the different extreme metals so i kind of wanted to get your take on like what what are your thoughts on the chicago metal scene currently um we're we're very we're very fortunate in chicago i think you you said it very well in the sense yeah. that there's a lot of depth of talent yeah, yeah there's you know a low barrier of entry for being able to share your music 
So we're able to actually hear what's happening in rehearsal rooms all yeah. around the oh, city. Absolutely. We're able to hear what people are collaborating on, um, you know, across geographic boundaries too. But I think one of the things that is important to Chicago, so there's actually two things I would point at. One, I sort of alluded to, which is the people element of what happens in Chicago. And that's yeah. the musicians and the proliferation, all the incredible talent that's at your fingertips, which is a very amazing thing to have as a consumer. Yeah. To me, it's kind of terrifying because it's a lot to listen to. It is, yeah. And it's anxiety-driving driving to think about all that's out there. Yep. But it's it's a great thing. The The choice is awesome. And the the again, you know, the ability for musicians to be able to put stuff out there uh, on the cheap and to create high quality recordings is amazing. And it's yielded all types of sort of overlaps of different st uh, music styles, and, uh, which is um, really, really uh, amazing. And also the places are very important. And I know that's something you touch on quite a bit on this show. It's yeah. important uh, to me, too. And that is, in Chicago, we're quite unique for a city of our size. We're not dominated by Live Nation right. or AEG like other cities are. Right. We do have Jam Productions, which is a large promoter, but they aren't necessarily monolithic. Hmm. We have uh, actually 16 on Center, who I work with the owners of The Empty Bottle and Talia Hall. I think that the new space that they're opening up at the Morton Salt facility that they purchased is going to be highly disruptive in the industry, too. So we have a, a pretty thriving industry of, you know, a variety of different size of promoters. Yeah, right. And everyone works very well at the at the independent level, too, going back even to, like, Delay the TIFF when the Lincoln Yards project right. launched. Everyone kind of got together and said, you know, whoa there, Live right. Nation, like, right. you're, you know, this is our, this is our city. Right. And we own this. Yeah, yeah. And that's continued with Civil, too, through, right. the, through the pandemic. And Absolutely. so I think that the, uh, the spaces of the, you know, the proper venues in the city is, uh, is amazing and unique. And it's one of the things that is an important driver for the talent that we that I was alluding to. And then also the sort of smaller clandestine spaces that, I mean, I remember going to like hardcore shows in Rogers Park in Absolutely. the 90s. Like th yeah. that stuff is, uh, is still out there. Right. And, you know, we're nowhere near where the UK is in property development and losing venues altogether, right. fortunately. Hopefully we don't. Hopefully yeah. things continue to be... Um, you know, positive for independent and clandestine organizers. For sure. That, that was actually one of the things that I, I, you, know, you hit that on the head with, you know, going through the pandemic. I mean, a, f a few places had just had to shut down, you know, and that's sometimes it's just business. Business is business. There's just too much risk, too much cost with things. Um, and, and the the funds were late to come for and, venues, too. Right. Or they just completely evaporated and right and with the uh the stuff coming from congress i think where some people are still waiting to stay, to get some things on that um but i think yeah there's a sense of resiliency like i i remember last spring when i started actually we rebooted my podcast and i started having uh artists come in to see how they were doing and how they you know they're kind of doing their their first shows back after 18 months and and the resiliency seems to be there in, in our city, um, you know, um, and, and hearing just how successful it's been. Uh, the one other thing is, as, as somebody who's been on the, the side of booking, but also as an artist, um, the, the bills that 
you all are putting together as promoters in our city now and as talent buyers seem a lot more intentional now. There's a lot more focus and curation on, hey, we're just not going to slap a bunch of random email bands together and see what happens. It's curated. The general consensus I have from seeing bills and, you know, getting the stuff inundated on Facebook and with emails now um, for invites, the, the bills are really well thought out. Um, and I think a lot of places learn the lesson with that, and they're also hedging their hedging their bets is the right expression, but um, they really want to put a high quality show out now, and I'm really happy to see that's kind of the the newer trend with that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, you know promoters that aren't tied to venues uh, such as myself, yeah. Um, offer a really unique service to venues right. in a certain respect is that they, they don't have to provide entertainment for an evening. We can, uh, we can provide sort of some of the creative ideation or right. uh, create a spark that yeah. then um, brings new people to those places right. as well. And that's something that I think is, uh, has been interesting about doing some shows at the empty bottle is, the, the mark that I always look at is do people know where the bathroom is? If they don't know where the bathroom is at the empty bottle or they don't know how to wait in line there, then it means that they haven't been there. And right. I get really excited when I see right. people struggling to find the bathroom. It's not because right. not for any other it's reason. It's new foot traffic. It's new customers. Yeah. And, and that's right. uh, and that's another uh, thing that the right. sort of independent like the promoters without a home can uh, can offer is a sort of a different imagination of space well, when you were attending like uh, music events. Yeah. How much research did you do into checking out who you were actually seeing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I have two paths with that. One of it is the regular friends are putting out new music or I haven't seen them in a while. It's a Friday night. Hey, honey, let's go out and see a show. Go out, we'll go have some dinner, and we'll go see a show. I'm going to join you on this Topo Chico here. Cheers. Cheers. Salute. Yeah. All right. Um, so there's that one path, and that's exclusively local. Um, and the, the local path, I mean, it's because I've been supporting local bands for so long. There, there's a big list of bands that, like, I just keep tabs on. Oh, if they got new music, I'll go buy a shirt, buy a CD, whatever. Go see the show. Um, and that's kind of the autopilot, so I don't even think about it. It's pretty intentional, you know. I don't go to really go to random shows, and I didn't in the past either. It's always on either a recommendation from a good friend, or it's a band I've heard from a submission from my emails that... Um, okay, I want to check these guys out. They've got me at 30 seconds. That's my rule. The music is good in 30 sec within 30 seconds to keep my attention. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. Um, and then you know I'll go check out their YouTube. It's like all right, these guys are worth the time and the, the resources for that. Um, or you know I find about about it through other means through blogs or you know sometimes that even NPR kind of turns me on to stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff that's really way out of my wheelhouse. Going back to the Carnatic music stuff, or different folkways, or um, you know, I, I I'm on a kind of an Afro-Cuban jag once again. I studied it when I was in college, 
Um, but like, okay, so I'm kind of starting to look around in the city. It's like, okay, well, there's got to be a good Latin music scene in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Come on. Um, we have a really large Latinx population here, so I would expect that there's something. So that's kind of my next research path. And then, you know, I'll find stuff, maybe it'll pop up or mm-hmm. just kind of wait and see if things come up in my feed. Because that's the nice thing about Facebook is once you start thinking about things, it just magically shows it to you now, the algorithms. Mm-hmm. So um, so there's a lot of intentionality to when I go see a show, mm-hmm. uh, even prior to the restrictions of space and time that I have now with that. So, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, you know, I used to, like, really kind of research – every band that I was going to yeah. to see okay in the in, in the before times especially I yeah. I was like very I had a high level of efficacy with how I was using my time okay and so I I, I was like I spent a lot of time doing that and then yeah. I had an experience uh in 2018 2018. Uh, going to Roadburn Festival in Holland. Right. And I looked at the lineup ahead of time. Yeah. And I think most people do a little bit of research. And I, I sort of r- figured out what I wanted to see every band and right. made a plan. Yeah. And the first day was very diligent, saw about 12 different bands, which was awesome. And then the second day, I just kind of looked at my schedule and was like, fuck this shit. I'm just going to go see whatever and um, treat it with like a level of romanticism again and make it fun. Yeah, yeah. And I actually found that I had a lot more fun that way. Oh, wow. Instead of stressing about these things that I had planned to see. And so it was a, it was a learning experience for me in some way. Sometimes you have to have a little bit more chance with things. Yeah. yeah. Fortunately, you know, in that situation, you can be pretty trusting of the, of the curation that wherever you kind of land, something's going to be good there. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, for, for listeners, it's important to, be trusting of yeah. a venue that you trust and of a, yeah. a curator that you trust Absolutely. and to go into things with a little bit of an open mind in the information technology era. Yeah. We can really spoil a lot of fun by knowing too much. Absolutely. And so for me, you know, uh, I've been doing stuff with music in a variety of capacities for years now. And I'm always trying to figure out ways to make it fun again. And I spent years yeah. trying to yeah. explore the business side of it as a means of making it fun because I'm not someone that like uh, works with their hands. I don't play music. I don't like build stuff. I right. I, I have no hand eye coordination. Like you don't give me something and say do something with it. Right. So like I just uh, sort of view creativity a little differently. But the thing is, is that um, I found that the music needs to be romantic to me again and something about the experience needs to be again. So I'm kind of cool with being a little bit ignorant about things, about what I'm going to see again. I don't go to things like entirely blind in terms of like, I'm just going to go to the empty bottle. But if I see something that looks like vaguely interesting, I'm like, yeah, I'll go. Sure. But I don't listen to it ahead of time. That's okay. the thing is like I want to actually 
be surprised and I wanted to discover. Yeah. Discovery is is one of these things that yeah. really can draw us to art in a very very unique way and that right. harnesses the power of the of the communication that the artist is attempting to uh, yeah that's well said to uh, to have uh, my greatest the thing that one of the things that really again drove me there was that experience of seeing in flames right I didn't know who they were oh, I showed really? up okay. yeah. and these guys walked out in uh, in you know uniforms basically and blew my fucking socks off. And, and it was a life-changing show It was a life-changing thing. So right, right, right. you can kind of go into things a little bit blind and actually have a better time than being overly prepared for it. Yeah, you know, I hear that. And I, I was thinking about, when, as you were kind of talking about that too, so my younger years, um, I would spend more time kind of wandering like around, around the city or whatever. And... There were a lot of good chance experiences from that. Um, so I, I, I hear you on that, and I think there needs to be more. There does need to be more of that. Yeah, you know, um, it gets you out of your box. It gets you out of your perceptions. They're not as concrete then, too, because, I mean, that 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 was the, one of those experiences. And I used to have them a lot more when I was younger, and I think it was just less technology and more being out in the world, you know, uh, as part of that. But th there's got to be a, a way to balance that now, you know, um, to have those chance experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, you know, the proliferation of events and of the knowledge of events yeah. makes it um, like a little bit overwhelming, overwhelming yeah, to yeah, decide yeah. to go do something. And right. obviously, um, you know, we can still be concerned about uh, COVID related things for sure. But also um, we kind of have to learn to trust um, yeah. the, the spaces that we believe the, in. The people again. who are trying to put the stuff on. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a I, really great message. Yeah. I think so. I think it's a, it, it's really, uh, it's, it's really important. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, that's a really good and point. And you know what? Like, if you go to a show and it sucks or you, you, do, you don't have a great time, what's a couple hours of your life? <laughs> yeah, life is right. long. Right. You're not scrolling on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And that that's always been um, a thing that I always talk about, but I've actually lately have been trying to pull out of the screen time um, just to be more efficient with things and just having a balance of things. But... Um, yeah, for for a while, and this is in the before the before times, as we call it. I feel I feel like we're in like the pre play, pre Black Plague, post Black Plague, Renaissance versus the Dark Ages kind of uh, thing, um, sort of metaphor, I guess. But um, for a while, it was Facebook was my only feed for events, and that felt very dangerous after a few months. Like if I'm getting everything from this one source. And what it was was there's a lot of repetition. I was like, okay, so I'm, you know, in a few months I've seen the same things or same kinds of things two or three times. And, you know, it's just got to be a different way to explore, like you're saying. And also um, thinking about that from the chance perspective again. How, how do we get those people's attention, even though the vast majority of people now are looking at everything online. I mean, I guess that has to be the necessary evil or the lowest common denominators. There still is the technology hook. People aren't going to go away from their phones, and that's, man, such a drag. Um, but, yeah, the, the, yeah the, the way to be able to present something as a chance experience um, 
it just seems more much more harder harder to do now you know and there and you know there's a lot of ways we can do that too and we can you know take it outside of the realm of live music and say oh yeah yeah hey like you're you're going to a restaurant try that dish that you haven't had before absolutely try the the, the drink you haven't had before um you know I, i think that every little bit that you do to try something new yeah. opens you up to uh, up to a, a certain type of discovery and then when you're engaging different senses as well yeah uh, it's it's very very uh, it's very uh, there's a, a high level of possibility to find something new yeah absolutely i, I want to make a note for listeners about sure. the 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 playlist oh yeah so you know, there's probably nothing on there that, um, you know, is going to be very new yeah. to listeners. Um, but what I, you know, I wanted to sort of extend some of the ideas that we spoke about oh, earlier yeah. Absolutely. Um, into the, the playlist. So sure. I included a couple of tracks from bands that are not from Chicago, but... From the performances live performances that were, uh, you know, recorded and captured in Chicago. Okay. And so, uh, I, you know, I okay. want people to uh, interpret that um, uh, with the same sort of manner that we were speaking about earlier, the, the as far venue, as letting the venue, right, letting yeah. the venue be a part of the performance that people uh, that people understand too. So that's a uh, I think there was a autopsy song yep. and then a. Uh, Porcupine Tree song, which was actually yeah. on a uh, on a DVD, and I was una- when I first saw the DVD, I was totally unaware that that was recorded at Park West, and then I actually was able to see Porcupine Tree subsequently at Park West, which is actually one of my top shows that I've seen in uh, in Chicago. But um, you know, any anything show wise you have coming up, you want to just chat about or yeah so my most recent show uh at the empty bottle uh passed recently uh with yellow eyes and immortal bird yeah. and uh nick from bong ripper doing a uh bottom set with guitar uh that was actually really awesome and i think it's it's been a lot of fun hosting shows now with a lot of bands that are kind of coming out of covid and doing yeah. their first show and seeing people come out and uh, uh, gather safely in these venues and to sort of watch this like rekindling yeah. uh, is, is is a lot of fun. And it really sort of validates a lot of the effort that I think venues uh, put and that uh, promoters uh, like myself uh, try to try to facilitate is those types of uh, types of connections. As far as things that are coming up, um, I'm anticipating doing several sort of co-promoted shows like I was uh, referring to that are sort of one-off things throughout uh, 2022. And then there will be a Scorched Tundra Festival at the Empty Bottle uh, September 1st through 3rd. Uh, those of you with calendars in front of you will observe the first is a Thursday. <laughs> and uh, every year I like to try something new. So it's almost like a pre-show or kind of a pilot to kick it off. Or? It's been, uh, it, you know, it's been a really weird thing figuring out this, like doing a festival on a holiday weekend business. Yeah, and we've had a, years of a lot of success of doing shows on that Saturday of uh, of Labor. Day. This is a little bit of inside baseball, but right. doing that Saturday of a holiday weekend is really hard. You have to have a, 
a very strong bill. Yeah. And so that's something we plan to do the Thursday and Friday. You know, people are gearing up for the weekend. Right. But I remember one year in particular when we first did a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, a three-day bill. And that Sunday was actually probably one of my favorite Scorched Tundra evenings. Oh, wow. And that was Oxbow from uh, the Bay Area mm-hmm. with Behold the Monolith, also from the oh, from Los Angeles, but California, and then uh, Relayer. And it right. was, I think, one of the best, uh, I think one of the best Scorched Tundra events, maybe one of the better shows I've seen at the Empty Bottle altogether in terms of just Oxbow being an incredible sort of out there jazz yeah. uh, inspired heavy band and then to be paired with uh behold the monolith was just like a lot of fun mm-hmm. and the unfortunate thing is there weren't uh you know the place wasn't full and yeah. so it made me sort of realize that you know if you're going to compete on a holiday weekend yeah. and especially like on that sunday you're competing with a lot of non-music uh, activities. Right. So yep. you got to bring the goods or you have to sort of reimagine mm-hmm. how you're using that weekend. Yeah, And so that's in line with sort of like everything that I think you need to do as a business owner or as an organizer is right. you always have to be willing to rethink things, whether they are unsuccessful or if they are successful, there's always things that you can get from something that is successful. It's a little like, uh, I think, of therapy. <laughs> you can have breakthroughs when things are good. It's not just when things are bad. And, right. I, and I think the, the same thing can happen when uh, you uh, experience something that's very successful. There's a lot that you can learn from that to make it better right. or to, uh, to apply otherwise. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Alexei Front from Scorch Tundra Festival and the Heavy Hops podcast. Um, you can find out more about his festival and uh, the shows he's putting together at the Empty Bottle uh, throughout the course of the year um, on the page that will um, accompany this episode at rockinchicago.org along with his wonderfully curated guest list um which is on spotify and youtube thank you so much for listening uh we're gonna close out with one more track for you tonight this is annihilus with twist ending from the latest release follow a song from the sky (laughs) 